Good morning, afternoon, and evening, and welcome to the 8311 Cast, your premier Midwestern-based sports podcast, bringing you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, Ariane Barry, and Wyatt Teeter, as we give you an all-star game recap, a recap of the French Grand Prix in Formula One, and of course, our signature segments, Mike's Stupid Rules, where we try to pay Mike's bail for something he totally should do, and write that down predictions here on episode 183. University of Tennessee was recently hit with 18 level one NCAA violations under head coach Jeremy Prute. I, I don't actually know pronounce his name. Pruitt. Pruitt. Yeah. Pruitt. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he they got hit with this for ineligible players logging snaps throughout the season and for improper benefit payments to recruits family members. So if we break down his tenure over the past three seasons, he's had 19 losses. 18 level one NCAA violations and 16 wins, which will probably be vacated by the NCAA. It's worth noting that his buyout was $12.6 million. But uh, UT had cause, so they apparently have no plans to to pay him. They had cause to fire him, right? I feel like he probably has the best record of losses to NCAA violations per season. Like if we broke it out on all coaches through all time, like what is the loss to violation uh metric i guess and it's completely pointless but i would i would be curious who has the record for the most level one ncaa violations because 18 seems like a lot that might be googleable 18 is quite a few we have some well-known coaches who have maybe had a couple of those but 18 seems significant i I will look this up throughout the episode and i will i will get back to you I guess so. Previously, I've got eight from SMU football. That's what I'm seeing. Is that like just one season, though? Yeah, it was. Well, it was the SMU football scandal. You've all heard of the oh, SMU yeah. football scandal, right? Yeah. The big one. Yes, the big one. Arizona State baseball had eight one year. Uh, Auburn had seven across sports once. Arizona State's were baseball, weren't they? Yes. How much did that whole North Carolina thing end up to being? Just a couple? But like that was a big deal. The the whole fake class one? Yeah. Well, that ended up just being a slap on the wrist. Well, of course, they're in North Carolina. So I'm also wondering, like, what's the NCAA's process here? Like, they've charged them with that, right? But do they have to, like, prove their case in a court of NCAA or something? Or is it just, hey? Yeah, so, so they do, they get some time to, like, put ultimately their defense together um and report back to the ncaa it's there will be like hearings about it and it's gonna go before um like the the division one committee i guess there's a committee to rule and preside over all of this as well so so it could be less than 18 at the end of the day but what's really interesting here is i feel like the ncaa is just doing this to distract you from the fact they've been trying to stifle nil stuff for the past decades because the the monetary allegations they're putting forth is like only sixty thousand dollars worth of illegal benefits like in the grand scheme of things nowadays that is small potatoes yeah I, I just find it interesting so so here's the next like steps and actions tennessee and everyone named in the report including pruitt have 90 days to respond to the notice of allegations the ncaa enforcement staff then has 60 days uh to reply uh, post Tennessee and all uh, namies uh, replying to it. Um, a source telling ESPN um, says that the case isn't expected to fully be adjudicated until sometime in 2023. I, I would not be shocked to see more cases, probably not to this scale, but similar situations because uh, the NCAA put out a press release quite a while ago basically saying that even though NIL was allowed now, they planned on going back through all the years preceding it and researching everything to make sure and basically clean up loose ends. And to me, that feels like the NCAA saying like, well, we had to give you this, but we're going to make sure that we can take as much as we can from you just to show you that we still got it. So don't be surprised, I think, if there are a couple other schools that come out with similar stuff from basically six months before it's legal, then they're like, oh, well, you did it before. So we're going to find you or penalize you or whatever we need to do for benefits or what have you that that does jive with how i personally see the ncaa from my glasses so yeah so the ncaa does have a database on this but it's not necessarily searchable in that aspect so yeah 
it's about all I can say. I can search it by school, but not by like number of violations in a given time. So like Baylor has eight, ranging from 1956 to 2011. But like that's obviously not all in one in one uh, instance. So maybe I'll keep digging and see what I can find, but I may not be able to find it. We'll see. Interesting. All right, so it was the saddest um, week in sports. But we did have um, the MLB All-Star Game and Home Run Derby to at least give us some joy and entertainment. Um, uh, the Home Run Derby was on Monday, um, and we did have um, some excitement with uh, Albert Pujols um, coming through and actually upsetting Kyle Schwarber in his first-round matchup. Um, the ended up the the final ended up being um, Mariners rookie phenom Julio Rodriguez against Juan Soto, um, and Juan Soto ended up taking the crown, just barely edging um, Rodriguez. It was a pretty entertaining event. Um, my biggest my I guess I have two biggest complaints about the event. The first one is, can we start it on time? Like, you say your home run derby starts at 7. Why is the first pitch being thrown at 7.30? You're getting worse than hockey. If you want to say it starts at 7.30, that's fine. I don't care. Just don't tell me it starts earlier than it actually does. And my second complaint is that the rules of the home run derby clearly state that a a pitch cannot be thrown until the previous ball lands. And... Basically, the pitcher was just throwing the next ball whenever he wanted all the time for everybody. Like, why have rules if you're not going to enforce them? They were not evenly or fairly enforced, and that was just it's, just, it's just not good. I think there was some type of fake ref-type deal behind them that was signaling when they could throw as well, so I don't know if they didn't know the rules properly either, but there was somebody back there who seemed like they were signaling as well. Yeah, there was, uh, there was an umpire. There was an umpire back there. I thought it was funny uh, there was a catcher. Yes, but oftentimes the pitchers were either ignoring the umpire or the umpire, you're right, was signaling too early. So, and maybe that's some of the MLB like saying, okay, they can throw a few more, you know, things like that because they want more action, but I don't know. Also, I think they counted some home runs that came after time was over. They 100% did, yes. Like multiple times and just like that shouldn't count and then it flies out and they give them another home run. It's like, okay. I won't get that worked up about the home run derby. It's not that important. Just, just some gripes that I had. Um, on Tuesday, we had the All-Star game itself, and uh, it was a pretty low-scoring affair. Um, the final, um, the final um, score was 3-2 to two in favor of the American League, um, and that it continues the uh, long winning streak from the American League. I believe that's now 11 in a row. Is that correct? 10 yeah, or 11. Now, yeah, now won 11 All-Star games in a row, I believe. So, nine, sorry. Ninth straight All-Star win. So the AL has been dominating in All-Star games. Um, but this was really a low-scoring game. The National League scored two runs in the first inning. Um, the American League answered back um, with three runs. I believe it was in the fourth inning on back-to-back home runs by um, Stanton and then Byron Buxton from the Twins. Um, so overall, if you like good pitching, uh, it was, uh, was good pitching. Um, there was a lot of good pitching. Um, Stanton won the All-Star Game MVP, which I really – don't necessarily, I can't really argue with that, except you know that if Byron Buxton hit the game-tying home run and Stanton hit the go-ahead home run, he would have won MVP too. So, you know, I just have that small guy. But otherwise, the game was kind of fun. It was cool to see some of the players mic'd up. Um, Again, the game is meaningless overall, but the players had fun, and it was sort of fun to see. Um, So overall, no major complaints about um, the All-Star game. I love the mic'd up aspect of it. I think, like you said, the game doesn't mean anything. So it's all about players having fun. So let people have fun with them. Like, let's see what they do. It's really interesting to hear them talk when they're doing stuff, if they'll actually explain their thought process. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it is. It's quite fun. I, I enjoy I enjoy that aspect of it, even if the game isn't necessarily played with as much intensity as it used to be. Um, 
but all was not well across Major League Baseball during that time. Um, the labor strife between Major League Baseball and the Players Association continues. If you remember um, during the offseason uh, and when the CBA was ratified, we were talking about some things that they essentially kicked the can down the road. One of those things was international player signings versus uh, international draft. So essentially because that was um, holding up negotiations, they essentially said, let's just agree that we have to get this figured out by a certain date or else you know, both sides get something they don't want. So essentially the league wants this draft and the players want to get rid of um, – uh, want to get rid of the qualifying offer um, system, which um, just as a quick recap, essentially means that um, they could um, teams lose draft picks for compensation for signing certain free agents, et cetera, et cetera. The players didn't like that because it makes those players less valuable on the free agent market. So they tied these two issues together and said, if the players don't agree to a international draft by a certain date, qualifying offers stay, but if we reach an agreement, the qualifying offers go. Well, the two sides were never close, uh, really, on the amount of money um, that would be in the pool that these, that these international players could get in the draft. Um, even in their closest offer, the league and the players were still $69 million apart um, on this financial, so it wasn't really close. Um, the debt the deadline is essentially passed for this deal to get done. So there will be no international draft, at least in the near future. The current um, format with the international signing period will continue um, for the foreseeable future, and so will the qualifying offer system. Now, this isn't a deal breaker. This isn't going to result in a strike or a lockout or anything like that. It's not that major, but it just shows that even though we got the CBA done, these labor relations have not smoothed over. Things have not gotten better. I don't foresee them getting better in the near future necessarily. So you start with, the league still has that hanging over their head that they've got to figure out at some point. And then on Thursday, um, the second half uh, opened up, an unofficial second half certainly opened up. And I think my biggest observation from the weekend was certainly the Blue Jays starting um, – Starting the second half off with a bang on Friday, they played the Red Sox and they beat them twenty-eight to five. That is that is a lot of runs to score um, in a single game. I think it, it included an inside the park grand slam. Um, that was kind of exciting and just a lot of a lot of high scoring there. Um, it was not a scoregami because I know you're all thinking that if you follow this podcast, you know, we love scoregamis, but it was not, um, in MLB scoregami that score has happened before, um, previously there were other, um, scores near it that could have been a scoregami, but the score of 28 to five has happened before. Um, so not a scoregami. We know what game that has previously happened in. So unfortunately, the website that I'm looking at right now, if you get over 25 runs, it does not list um, does not list them out individually. There have been uh, there have been nine games that have been 25 plus to five. There have been nine games that have been 25 plus to five, but it doesn't tell me which one specifically. Um, is 28 to 5. So unfortunately, I can't tell you unless I can find a different um, Scorigami site here that tracks them. Let's see. So I did recently learn of why that is. Um, and the information we're reading this from for our listeners is from Dana uh, Bennett, um, scoregami.danaben.net, if you want more MLB Scorigami information. And the reason why they don't give you any more than 25 is that out of the 215,737 games, that they pull historical data from only 78 of those at a team score more than 25. So I think that's a fair enough reason to cap it at 25 because that's an insanely small percentage of games that have a uh, on over that number. So yeah, not a scoregami, unfortunately, as soon as uh, I saw that, that score update from Kyle in the fifth inning, I was like, Ooh, we may have a scoregami because that game 
turned into a blowout real fast. In the top or in the bottom of the fifth inning, it was already 25 to three. And I was like, okay, we're definitely entering Scorigami here, territory here, but it did not happen, unfortunately. So now we're just back to regular old baseball, but we are quickly approaching the All-Star break. Oh, sorry, not the All-Star break, the trade deadline. Much more exciting than the All-Star break. The MLB trade deadline this year is on August 2nd. Um, yep, so it's on August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern time. So 5 p.m. East, 5 p.m. Central, which is where most of our listeners are, um, is where the trade deadline um, will occur. And give you a little bit of a just to give you a little bit of a preview i would say the biggest name available is certainly juan soto and we talked about that um last week uh, on last week's episode other big names that i've heard available there have been some some rumors recently that the angels may be looking to trade shohei otani that would certainly might be one of the biggest players to get traded ever um if he does get traded i'm not sure what his contract is, um, that could make it a difference. Let me look at his contract. So Otani is under contract for one more season after this one, and then he'll be a free agent. So I've heard rumors that he could be traded by the Angels. Some other big names, Frankie Montas, um, pitcher for Oakland. His name has been in a lot of trade rumors. Same with uh, Castillo, the pitcher for the... um, Reds. The pitcher for the Reds, yeah, are, are probably the two biggest pitching names that could get traded. Um, there are a couple others, but those I would say are the two big names. Um, there'll be a fair number of teams who are looking to buy. There'll be more buyers than sellers. If you look at Fangraph's postseason odds, there are, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, there are 12 teams with a greater than 50% chance of making the playoffs. So those teams will probably be obvious buyers. And then there are uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 teams um, with a chance to make the playoffs of under 25%. So those are going to be your obvious sellers. So you've got more obvious buyers than sellers here. Um, so that should create a good market for the sellers, but we will see, um, how the market shakes out and, and who moves. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on the trade deadline or anything else baseball related? Any players you really want to see a team go get or, or trade away? Uh, I had talked about this, like maybe a, I forget when it was a week or two ago, maybe two weeks ago. Um, if the Royals don't trade Andrew Benintendi, that's an absolute like missed opportunity. The Royals need to trade trade him, especially while he's at as high a value as he is right now. Uh, minus the fact that if he were traded to the Yankees, he might not be able to get into the ALDS game three or four. Uh, but they're playing the Toronto Blue Jays. But oh well, it's the price you pay, I guess. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was the Red Sox are falling apart. Um, the Red Sox in July have five wins and 15 losses with a negative 72 run differential. And by the way, if you just happen to put the ball into play, you're probably going to create a good clip for MLB airs on Twitter, or, uh, at least have, uh, some funny gag videos to, uh, help with our, with a season ending MLB airs. Uh, episode because the Red Sox are abysmal in the field. Defense does matter. I mean, you've seen this with the Phillies too, right? The Phillies defense is also abysmal. Um, And you can have some success that way, but eventually it's going to come bite you um, if you can't play defense. You got, there there are more aspects to the game than just hitting. Defense does matter. The Phillies are learning why you can't just sign a bunch of great offensive players and throw them out there and succeed so yeah boston philadelphia not great on defense yeah i'm just hoping that the cardinals can kind of shake their very traditionally conservative viewpoint and make a couple big moves near the deadline 
We definitely could use some pitchers. We had a lot of injuries and our offense just kind of disappears sometimes. So they could they could use help on both sides of the ball. You'd love to see him try and get Castillo from the Reds, but you got to question whether they want to trade in the division. Um, but hopefully they can make a couple updates. They're in good spot. Uh, they just need a little bit more to make sure they're in he- out ahead of the Brewers. Yeah, the Brewers are definitely still favored to win that division. The Cardinals could uh, could very well get a wild card, and they are Cardinals are only two and a half games back right now, and they have about double the run differential. They're they look better in the games they win. They just have a lot of duds. Yeah, that's true. But both uh, Fangrass and Five Thirty Eight have the Brewers as heavily favored to win that division down the stretch. So. But we will see. That's why they play the games. The projections don't mean everything. As far as the Twins goes, I'd like to see the Twins pick up a couple of relief pitchers at the deadline. The bullpen is a mess. Um, So I would love to see um, the Twins pick up some relief pitchers. That's what I'm hoping for. That's it for baseball. It was a little bit of a light week with the All-Star game, but I'm sure next week we'll have tons of news to bring you um as we approach the trade deadline but for now i'll hand it over to kyle and wyatt to talk about the french grand prix yeah so we had the french grand prix this past weekend and let me tell you it was a toasty one over in france track temperature which is really what we care about air temperature don't don't care so much but the actual temperature of the asphalt where we're racing was 54 degrees celsius which is 130 fahrenheit at the the start of the race which is very very hot Reference in 2018, uh, the Hungarian Grand Prix had a track temperature of 60 degrees Celsius or 140 Fahrenheit, which is like the record track temperature of all time. And we care about track temperature because that is a huge factor in how the tires of the cars actually wear out. How do the temperature, the more rubber is expended throughout corners and stuff. Formula One, as you may or may not know, um, teams essentially have the choice of picking between three different tires a hard a medium and a soft tire and the hardest tire provides the least amount of grip but lasts the longest and the soft compound tire generally gives you more grip but wears out sooner so pirelli has five different spans of tires going from a c1 to a c5 where c1 is the hardest compound available and c5 is the softest the french grand prix pirelli chose to use the c2 uh, which is the second hardest tire as our hard compound the C3 is the medium, and the C4 as the soft. In my opinion, uh, just based on what we saw in the race, which we'll get into later, they probably should have chosen the C1 as our hot, hard compound tire just due to the track temperatures, um, but they didn't. The, you don't really know what the track temperature is going to be until the day of, of course, but uh, in hindsight, they probably should have chosen a much harder compound for our hard compound tire because we saw uh, quite a few issues with tire wear throughout this race. Before we start talking about the race, though, we had a couple fun facts and some weird um, power unit changes. So this French Grand Prix was Lewis Hamilton's 300th Grand Prix start. He is the sixth driver of all time to start 300 Grand Prix or more. Um, along with that, though, no driver that has started their 300th Grand Prix has ever won a Grand Prix after that. So we'll see if if he can uh, break that record as well. Um during the race, Fernando Alonso surpassed Kemi Raikkonen's most laps completed in a Grand Prix at 18,629 total laps. Yeah, so in addition, um, this weekend, uh, two two drivers, well, one uh, from Ferrari that is battling for um, top spot in the uh, Constructors' Championship, Carlos Sainz, uh, as, of, as of the previous race at the Red Bull ring, we all knew he uh, retired from the race because of a blown engine, blown power unit uh, with a fire as well. So obviously there that needed to be changed. And he had already incurred a lot of um, power unit swaps throughout the season, which ultimately trigger grid penalties uh, in your next race. So Ferrari confirmed ahead of the opening practice at Paul Ricard on Friday that science power unit had been fitted with a new control electronics, which take, took him over his season limit that triggered a 10-place grid penalty. The team did opt, however, to take further additional elements, uh, including the, a fresh engine turbocharger MGUK, MGUH, uh, which ultimately puts science to start the race from the back of the grid. Now, why does the team do that? Because they're already incurring a penalty, so why not take the other ones, incur the penalty all at once, rather than having to do it and incur another 10-grid penalty later on in the season? So... 
That's why they did it. Haas, a mid-pack team this season. Uh, Kevin Magnussen, obviously that Haas uh, car is powered by the Ferrari power unit. Also having some issues. Magnussen's power unit was also fitted with a new engine, turbocharger, MGUK, MGUH, as well as taking a fresh exhaust system. So exhaust systems are also tracked. Um, Eight of those is the allotment in the season. So Science and Magnussen occupied the back row um, for that French for the French Grand Prix. So you threw out a bunch of acronyms there. The biggest one being a power unit, which uh, for for you two, Mike and Ariane, a power unit is the thing that makes the car go right. That that makes sense. Yeah, I, I assumed that. Yeah, it sounds like me facetious, but the power unit is comprised of four main components, which is the engine. Which, if you think of your car, your car has an engine, right? It runs off of gasoline, goes bang, and you go forward, right? But there's also a or turbocharger, or, or backwards. That's right. Um, and ideally, left to right. Take it or leave it. So we have the, the engine, engine doesn't necessarily control that. <laughs> no, no, but but your wheels do, right? Uh, f- fair enough. You got me there. What grade um, are my wheels? Am I rocking like C a million? Are they harder? Are they softer? What's the difference between tires that a normal person would be driving on? Well, uh, you'll have tread on yours, and your tread will have grooves to displace water, which in F1, they normally race on slicks if it's dry. Right. Uh, so that's a big reason. Uh, another one is that F1 tire probably costs more than your car. <laughs> a set of them, anyway, probably costs more than your car <laughs> overall. Uh, they're very expensive. But it's essentially the same stuff, right? It's just rubber, where rubber meets the road. Uh, bringing it back to the power unit, though, it's made out of four main components, right? An engine, which we all know what an engine is. A turbocharger, which... A lot of cars nowadays have a turbo on it. It's, it's what a turbo is. Uh, the other two things are pretty Formula One specific, the MGUH and the MGUK. So the MGUK is essentially like if you were to take a Tesla and a normal car and make a baby out of it where you had a normal engine, but also an electric engine all in one. Um, that's what the MGUK is doing. It's a separate electrical engine that's tied to the normal engine or electrical motor that's tied to the normal engine. That can recover energy when the car is like slowing down through corners. It charges up a battery in the car. And you can use that dispersed energy in the battery then to power the electric motor work in conjunction with the gasoline engine. Weird, right? It's like, it's like a hybrid, but you're having two engines instead of... It's a Prius on steroids, essentially. I mean, wild stuff. And it gets even weirder because the MGUH um, is a separate system that is driven off of the turbo itself. So the turbo has a big fan that goes spinny, spinny really fast, right? And that spinniness is used to push more air into the gasoline engine. It's also used to turn a separate electric motor to store power elsewhere that you can use to spool up the turbo without the gasoline engine spooling it up. So they can shove more air into the engine without having engine gases drive that turbine so the power unit is extremely complex and changing any one of those components can give you um essentially a strike on your record for power unit changes which is where kevin magnuson came from so that's kind of a brief overview of the extremely complex nature of how f1 cars go from zero to really fast it's it's insane how do you get four four components like that and and then some right to actually work in in conjunction to do some of the stuff they're doing i don't know it's just wild I did not know that's how that worked. A lot of moving parts. Yeah, that's interesting. Huh. And all of those moving parts make for fantastic racing. So at the start of the race, uh, the French Grand Prix, uh, Charles Leclerc actually got a very well. Uh, Max Verden did as well. Uh, obviously, you're one, two um, in the front row in this Grand Prix. But Charles Leclerc got away well and was able to pull away, actually, from Max Verstappen. He had about a second gap in the first lap, which typically you don't see too often. Um, Ferrari, this this French Grand Prix track did seem to suit Ferrari a little bit better with some of the higher speed quarters, uh, corners. Um, and that is something that lends itself to Ferrari with that stability. Red Bull lends itself to the... Uh, to being much faster on straights. Why is one second obviously the critical thing in Formula One? Well, a one second differential, if you are within one second of the car in front of you, there is the drag reduction system that kicks in after lap two of the race, typically. 
unless it's like too wet, the FIA doesn't allow it, but those are extenuating circumstances, not applicable to the French Grand Prix. Be- but with Charles Leclerc able to put that one second gap between he and Max Verstappen, it allowed for him to be just out of DRS range. Now, Verstappen had to make this up pretty quickly if he wanted to battle Charles Leclerc within the first couple of laps of the race before he had to back off in order to save the tires a little bit. So Max Verstappen was able to make this up on the following lap to be about half a second behind, which made him able to use DRS uh, on lap three when DRS was enabled um, in this race. So both uh, Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, importantly, had a five-second gap ahead of Lewis Hamilton, um, right about five laps, and that just made for... Uh, well, it just goes to show that that Ferrari car, the Red Bull car, the RB18, are still above head and shoulders above um, that Mercedes car, even though that Mercedes car has made leaps and bounds um, throughout the throughout the season. So the first half of the race really was an awesome battle between Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen with Ferrari fending off the Red Bull in the corners. Red Bull is already faster than Ferrari in the straights, as I mentioned, and Verstappen, uh, and with Verstappen having DRS available, kept things interesting. So, Wyatt, with DRS available, how does DRS work? What does what what do the detection zones do? And how many how many DRS zones are there on a track? Uh, it kind of depends on what track. I think uh, Circuit Paul Ricard had. Two or two. three? Okay, there wasn't was a third two. one on the other straight. Okay. But there's two DRS zones, and we're not really going to talk about what the, the detection zones are or anything, but essentially you can think of a DRS zone as the, a long straightaway on the circuit, right? And it, like you said, if you're within one second, you can activate DRS, or, or the person that's behind the other car can activate DRS, the guy that's, that's in the place behind him. Essentially, all that it does is open up a big box that allows more air to go through. And that big box is the rear wing. So if you're really cool and you got a clapped out Honda Civic, you probably have a spoiler on it that doesn't do anything. But in Formula One, the big spoiler in the back of the car provides a lot of downforce on the rear tires that keep them stuck to the ground so they can take corners really fast. That downforce also includes some drag, which makes the car ultimately slower. DRS opens up that rear spoiler to allow air to flow through it instead of pushing it down on the tires, which makes that guy... Uh, in second place much faster than the guy in first place like by a lot if you're watching formula one you'll see sometimes when drs is activated they just take off like they're already going hundreds of miles per hour right and now all of a sudden the number two guy is just flying around the number one guy it's insane how much help drs can give you that's essentially all that it is it's just making the second guy go faster yeah and ultimately it gives what we've been seeing so far this season is about 12 to 13 miles per hour um, of additional speed for some of these cars with with that drag reduction system so it's a huge advantage there's been a lot of talk um around the motor racing scene of is drs too powerful um does that need to be you know limited a little bit so we'll we'll see if the fia ever addresses that in the future also worth noting this is kind of adjacent to drs but formula e or the electric r variant of formula one um had this really weird thing i don't think they do anymore that they might this was a couple years ago but they had an option of when while you were watching the race live you could download an app and essentially boost your favorite driver or give them more power in their electric car make them go faster it was very strange but it was a way to like get people interested in formula e i suppose um i guess i don't think they do that anymore but it was very adjacent to drs instead of having drs they had this power up or, or boost mode that fans could give to their favorite driver huh that's interesting that's, i didn't know about that huh. i don't know if i like that just in general like i said i i don't think they do anymore but that was a one that's not a serious league thing. i feel like formula like, e is a pretty serious league like what was it uh the fcl fan controlled league for football where the play the fans could pick the plays for people i think that's where johnny football is now that that's what that reminds me of now it, it looks like they replaced that fan based one with what they call an attack mode, which is essentially DRS, where the driver can activate it within a certain, you know, if they're within a certain uh, time limit of the guy ahead of them on certain parts of the track. But so you just get like a Mario mushroom, basically. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's that's what DRS is for for Formula One as well, basically. Yeah. Right. Fun. You want to take this part? It looks like they actually still have it. It's called Fan Boost. It's different now where you choose your favorite driver up to three days prior to the race. And whoever uh, it's that can deploy a five second boost of power within the second half of the race. I'm pretty sure it used to be you could do race, but anyway, it sounds like they do still have it, but they've kind of nerfed it a little. But as we were talking uh, with Red Bull getting DRS and they're already faster on the straights, um, Claire was still able to fend him off at the corners. However, the medium compound tire that Charles Leclerc started on was starting to wear out, you know, due to the, the aforementioned track conditions. And it was really hot and there's a lot of corners in the circuit Paul Ricard where you go out flat out. You have your right foot all the way to the floor as you're going around the corner, which really eats away at the rubber. Generally, uh, circuit Paul Ricard is a front limited track where most of your tire wear is coming from the front of the car steering. Um, so there's a lot of potential for understeer here. And you, you, like I said, you're wasting a lot, a lot of rubber on, on the track here. The first half of the race, Charles Leclerc was having a lot of issues coming out of the corner. Like his back end was really wobbly. So me either having issues with downforce in the rear or uh, Leclerc is hitting on the gas too soon to cause a little bit of slippage in the rear. It was really interesting to see, like I said, the, the rear just being loose. Uh, it's very strange. It looked like Mercedes was going to go for a two-stop. They, they pitted Verstappen. Um Within that same lap, before Ferrari even had a chance to react to this potential two-stop, Leclerc lost his rear going around Le Bousset, which is turn 11, uh, and spun out into a barrier, which ultimately led to his retirement from the race. Extremely frustrating for any Ferrari fan, extremely frustrating for Charles Leclerc, and also whatever's left of Ferrari's strategy team. This is the third time this season that Leclerc has went from leading a race to retiring from the race. This happened in the Spanish Grand Prix, uh, Azerbaijan and now here at Circuit Paul Ricard. I it was it was a mistake first of all. There, there was no technical issue that caused him to spin out into the barrier. It was a driver mistake and these things do happen. Charles Leclerc is a very young driver. He's 24 years old racing number 1 seat for Ferrari. That's a lot of pressure and he's a really good driver. But some of these mistakes like holy crap, I can't believe it. I, I'm not going to fault the guy. He's driving a heck of a lot better than I could or most people in a Ferrari car could as well. I just it's painful to see stuff like that happen. He was so far ahead of Verstappen, um, even before Verstappen pitted, and he had such a good chance of winning the race. And to see it be taken away by him going around the corner wrong is, is frustrating. And when we mean going around the corner wrong, it was like fractions of inches were the difference between him making that corner uh, stick and him ending up in the barrier. So it, that's really all it is. It, just like any other sport, you say football's a game of inches. Well, so is motor racing. It's a game of inches. In some cases, um, millimeters. It's, yeah, exactly. But we were also treated to another great battle uh, at the latter half of the race. Really two, ultimately, at the latter half of the race. Um, it, the first one being between Perez and Sainz. So this one was uh, a battle between... Uh, third and fourth place at the time with science carrying a five second penalty for an unsafe release uh, in pit lane. So science was trying to overtake Perez. He was on the radio with the team talking about, does he want to come in, take the five second penalty, get a fresh set of tires? Well, as he was overtaking Checo Perez, they, it was great wheel to wheel battle uh, through some of these, those high speed quarters corners just past the pit lane entry uh science really was at a point where he was going to pass uh checo for good and over the radio he gets box box from his race engineer telling him to come into the pits and he's like no not now i'm passing checo perez uh on track obviously the race engineers were caught up in what do we do not noticing that at the time their driver out on the track is performing a fantastic maneuver on very old and aging tires uh, over that Red Bull. And it just goes to show that Ferrari is horrible at strategy. Like, what is their strategy? Hint, there is none at all. At that time, with that five-second penalty that Sainz was carrying, they either needed to pit him sooner than only 13 laps left in the race, or leave him out, let him figure it out, and then just absorb that five-second penalty after the race was over and hope that he could put a five-second gap between 
uh, him and Checo Perez, right? That's what you try and do. But in that case, Ferrari had him come in on the next lap. He ends up pitting and gets a new set of tires. Where does he come out? 10th. And so for 10 laps, all he has to do is foot to the floor, try and make up as much ground as possible, gets back up to fifth place. He did serve his time penalties, so they didn't have to take that off at the end. But without that, he could have easily finished fourth if he had put enough time between him and Checo Perez with that five-second time penalty. Possibly third. But Ferrari messed that up and ended him in fifth place because they didn't either go A, early enough, or B, just left him out there. So, uh, but I, I don't know. It, it is what it is. Thankfully, we were treated to uh, a spin-out at the end of the race, which caught another spin-out, which, or sorry, it wasn't a spin-out. It was Joe Groen Yu uh, retiring from the race, but it brought out a virtual safety car, which doesn't bunch the pack up. It limits their uh, speed all to one speed, so they have to reduce power, um, drive around the track just kind of normally, like we would kind of be moseying around the track uh, at a normal pace. And this actually helped develop a great battle that was already evolving prior to that uh to the virtual safety car between george russell and checo perez uh so at this point it was a battle for third and fourth george russell had already tried to go uh, on the inside on a tight chicane around checo who squeezed him off uh there's some controversy as george russell was like oh that was my corner checo said oh he pushed me off the track it was just hard racing trying to get gain the advantage there. But at the end of the ri- or during that virtual safety car, George Russell was kind of playing a little bit cat and mouse. He's backing off lower than the uh, max speed and then speeding up. And what happened was he actually timed it really well so that when the virtual safety car ended, he got on the gas and was in a much better position with better traction than Checo and was able to pass him within the span of like 50 meters uh ultimately on that restart so george russell blows by checo checo tries to uh for all it's worth get back into it but just wasn't able to with uh the state of his tires and what's going what was happening for him in that race so because checo was napping he ended up handing mercedes a 2-3 uh in the podium finish um for the race so so perez alleges and i think alleges is the wrong term because this did actually happen but the virtual safety car system actually failed and the restart happened instead of happening like 10 15 seconds after you get the notification that, that it's going to end it happened about a minute and a half later so checo perez thought that the safety card ended and started to speed away and then realized oh crap it hasn't actually ended yet because the vsc failed failed over to like a backup system or something so then he slowed down, which then allowed Russell to get a proper restart off and pass around him. So that's what he's blaming it on. I didn't know this till after the race, but very interesting. I have a question. Yes. So when you say digital car, like are the people who are, I don't know how this works. Are the people who are in charge of the race, they have control of all the cars. Is that how that works? So essentially it's like a notification system where you say, hey, a virtual safety car is out. And when that happens, like Kyle said, the drivers are now restricted uh, to drive 40% slower and they can't pass each other. So that's kind of on them. And if they break those rules, they'll get a penalty. Okay. That's what I was wondering if they just had it was on our system or somehow they had an overarching control of everybody's car. No, there there is a there is a mode and a switch on their on their steering wheel that they can uh, change it so that it limits their speed, essentially cruise control. on a normal car vehicle uh they have it for pit lane so that they don't exceed speed on the pit lane and during those virtual safety cars they have it as well gotcha yeah so overall the finish of the race wind up being uh, max verstappen lewis hamilton george russell so we saw the two mercedes up on the podium which was not too surprising for the first for the first time this season both mercedes have finished on the podium together yeah i guess i should say this shouldn't be surprising but it is because it hasn't happened yet uh, as opposed to last season it was uh, verham bot almost every single race um then four through ten we had sergio perez carlos Sainz, fernando alonso lando norris um frenchman espen Ocon, um daniel ricardo and lance stroll rounding out at number 10 so the middle of the pack there is kind of what we expected for 
rest of this race. My recap, personally, is that one, Ferrari still has no strategy. Two, it was hot, uh, led into tire compound issues. And three, we had a lot of really cool car-to-car battles throughout not only the front of the race, but also throughout the middle and rear of the pack with uh, Perez coming back up from qualifying at 19, or sorry, Carlos Sainz from, from 19 all the way back to finishing in fifth place. And my takeaways from this this race and weekend in France is, yes, it was very hot. Uh, surprisingly, we didn't see any power unit issues for the Ferrari, but we did see some other Ferrari-powered cars have some issues as well. Um, and ultimately, Ferrari needs to figure out what the heck they're doing um, because it is starting to starting to slip away from them a little bit. Uh, in the constructors' standings right now, um, Red Bull has a significant 82-point uh, advantage there. And then Max Verstappen in the driver's standing now has um, a 63-point lead on Charles Leclerc. So that's going to be a hard gap to make up. Um, pretty much Ferrari needs to have multiple multiple one twos throughout the rest of the season in order to even have a sniff at making this a more competitive um season end uh, after the summer break so so you our our humble listener take your newfound knowledge of the power unit of formula one the tire compounds of formula one the virtual safety car system and use that newfound knowledge to watch the hungarian grand prix next week july 31st 8 a.m central standard time on ESPN. This will be the last race before the summer break, which uh, has about a month or so between races. So get your F1 in now before you have to wait until school starts again. Very nice. Thank you both for that um, awesome wrap up of the French Grand Prix. I learned quite a bit. I assume, Ariane, you did as well. Yes, sir. So thank you all for that. I will be better informed next time that I maybe watch F1, which, you know, probably won't be on Sunday, because why would I get up at 8 o'clock? That's too early. It's better than like a 4 a.m. race. That's true. It's better than the 2 a.m. Australian Grand Prix that (laughs) I went to bed early for at like 9 o'clock and then woke up for it. I'm going to do my best. How long do these things usually last? Uh, two hours, the race two and a half it, hours. Yeah, the race itself is about an hour and a half, pending, you know, red flags, caught number of cautions. All right, I'm gonna try and get some in. I'm gonna watch it. We'll see if I do or not. That's this is this Sunday. Yeah, Sunday. this Sunday, July 31st. Okay, I'll see. I'll see what I can do. Um, I'll bring my newly found expert knowledge to the table next week. I'll talk about what tires they're using. I'll be like that car was red. <laughs> So this week in Mike's Stupid Rules, I don't have any specific play that I want to talk about because, you know, there wasn't that much baseball. Um, But I just want to talk about um, one rule that I randomly found while perusing the rule book today. Actually, two rules um, that I found interesting. There's 4.06 and 4.07 rules in the official Major League rule book. Um, So rule 4.07, we'll start there, is about security. Now, so you know that, you know, regular people cannot go on the playing field during a game. Um, but um, uh, part B of that rule is a little interesting because it says the home team shall provide police protection sufficient to preserve order. If a person or persons enter the playing field during a game and interfere in any way, the visiting team may refuse to play until the field is cleared. And if the field is not cleared in a reasonable length of time, which, in, which cannot be less than 15 minutes, the umpire-in-chief may forfeit the game to the visiting team. So, essentially, if you don't mind going to jail, if you're ever at a road game against your team, if you can manage to jump on the field and avoid security for 15 minutes, theoretically, the umpire could forfeit the game for your team. So you would, your team would win if you were the road team. 15 minutes. Yes. That would be a spectacle. Yes, you've got to, and you've got to be so obnoxious that the opposing, that, that the, the visiting team leaves the field, essentially. You almost need to, like, tightrope where they can't get to you, you know? If they just decide to play, though. 
But the, right, it says they have the option of not playing. The visiting team does right, but so, if, I mean, if it was a visiting team spectator, they of course they wouldn't play if the forfeit was going to go in their favor. That's true. However, um, this does go back to geez, probably a month ago when we said if you ever were going to get arrested for causing a bench clearing brawl at a baseball game, we would pay for your bail. I would like to add this onto the list. We will pay for your bail. How, however. We're not saying you should do this. We, no, we are in no we way saying never... you should do this. If this is just to... for Mike. This is not the general listener, for sure. If you happen to get in this circumstance and you're able to cause this scenario to happen, we would absolutely pay for your bail. Mm, I still don't think I'm going to do it. It's still probably not worth it. Ah, uh, Still probably not worth it. Maybe in a playoff game. Game 7 of the World Series. We'll, in we'll check in in October. Yeah, in St. Louis. I'll go down to St. Louis and do this so the Twins beat the Cardinals in the World Series. All right, still I'll come with board? you, my friend. I would, I would consider making that trade-off. <laughs> uh, that would be fun for a little bit. For the a very little... short amount of time until you're in jail. For, for about 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the other rule I want to talk about was rule that I can't remember if we touched upon this during the episode or if we touched on it before or after but it's a 4.06. It's called no fraternization. Um, and the rule specifically says players in uniform shall not address or mingle with spectators, nor sit in the stands before, during, or after a game. No manager, coach, or players shall address any spectator before or during a game, and players of opposing teams shall not fraternize at any time while in uniform. So there you go. I, you, you had some questions about that last week, Ariane, so I just wanted yeah. to talk about it as well. That's what the rule officially says. Now, obviously, none of that is actually enforced, but that yeah, rule, this is the 2021 version of the rule book, the most recent update. So this rule is still in the books. It's not like I'm digging out something from the archives that doesn't exist anymore. This is, this is still on the book, just not enforced. That does limit it to just in uniform, though. That's true. It doesn't say what they can't do out of uniform, but... I mean, to me, the fans part of it is interesting, right? Technically, it means once they're in uniform before a game, you can't go over and give autographs. Yeah, just ignore like everybody. That. Right, which I don't think is good for the sport, but that, that is, and it's obviously not enforced, but that is the rule. I mean, technically, you could argue that throwing a ball, like the balls they use to warm up, like throwing that into the stands, technically could be a violation of this rule. So what we need is somebody like just to do a Belichick in the middle of a game and be like, nope, that's the rule. You have to enforce it. I'm demanding it. And then try and get an advantage like that. That's exactly what Bill Belichick would do. So this is another example in the rule book of, of what would be called a don't do that rule because there's no penalty, right? Like I just read the penalty for the, the, the security rule, right? There's a penalty. The rule's not followed. There's a penalty. There's no penalty for this. This is sort of just a don't do that rule. Like we talked about with the Bach um, a couple weeks ago, where they, they tell you not to do it, but they don't, they, they, they can't do it. There's nothing in the rule book of what they're supposed to do about it if you do. So it's weird that there are so many of those where they're like, don't do that. And then you say, well, what if I did? And they're like, well, we, we didn't get that far. This game has only been around for literally ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just don't do it. Just yeah. trust us. We know it's don't worry about don't it. Do it. Don't do it. Um, and, and don't do it is probably what everyone should be saying when we make our predictions, mm-hmm. because generally they're not very good. Um, and this week was, was no exception. It was not a particularly good week for um, predictions. First off, the board is a prediction from Ion that said multiple Cardinals would start the MLB All-Star game. That did not happen. Um, Goldschmidt was the only one, so that, that's only one. One is not he- multiple. Did he actually? I think he might have pulled out. I thought he played. I thought I saw him in the oh, box. Oh, did he? My score. bad. I must have I'm seen pretty sure else. I saw him in the box score. I've, I've since closed it, but I looked and uh, he, he was in the box score. So I take it back then. So, but either way, it's still wrong. So, nah. Nah. Kyle nah. predicted that Ferrari would go 1 2 in the next race, as um, just talked about. Ferrari went 5 and DNF in this race so that's a big i predicted that pete alonzo would win the home run derby he got eliminated in the semifinals, um so that's not a win so i get it and uh i am predicted that 
Albert Pujols would beat Kyle Schwarber in the first round, which, as we talked about earlier, did indeed happen. So Arian redeems us at the end and gets a ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. So to get our predictions back on the board, um, in um, in the spirit of the trade deadline, I am going to predict that the Twins will trade for at least two pitchers by the trade deadline. At least two pitchers. Any any type of pitcher doesn't have to be a relief or starter, just. Somebody who throws the ball. Yep, major league. We'll, we'll qualify it as major league pitchers. So if they decide, good, if require minor point, league, actually. if they require minor league pitchers, that won't count. We'll say we'll say MLB pitchers, but could be starters or relievers. As you said, I mean they need more pitchers than. But can they get two? The the Twins bullpen currently ranks 29th in baseball and WAR, so they need Thanks. it. You two think about it. I just want to be pedantic. We're not saying that they trade for uh, a position player and then that position player happens to pitch at some point. No, two play <laughs> two players who are listed on Designated. the roster as their position yeah. is a pitcher. Yes, I think there's a high likelihood of this happening, but I don't. I was leaning towards double just because of the randomness of that's, like getting everybody that's... else to be involved. That's what I was going to say. Now, if your prediction was that they will trade for a non-pitcher who pitches twice, then <laughs> I'll give you a much better grade for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not predicting that. I feel like that's a bad idea. Fair enough. I'm going to say double. Yeah, I'll go double as well. Double. Okay. Is from Josh this week? Is he still alive? He's still alive. He's still doing good. He did leg day today, so he's a little bit sore. And because of that, or maybe not because of that, maybe for some other reason anyway, he... uh. Did not uh, have a prediction for us this week, so he gets a strikeout. He does normally submit his uh, his predictions by leg, so that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to steal Kyle's prediction from last week and say that Ferrari's yeah, I was going to go gonna one, say, two. <laughs> this looks a little sim- familiar. It's not It's not just because I copied you. It's because Ferrari needs to go one, two in Hungary before the summer break. Otherwise, they do. They are they are just gonna fall apart. So I'm gonna say they are gonna go one two in Hungary. I mean, is it any more? Is it? Is there any reason to say it's any more or less likely than it was when Kyle predicted it? Uh, is the track better or worse for them? No, but they really, really need to now. Like last race, they didn't need to, but now they've like lit the fire under their butt, and they. Uh, this is this is choice. a short track with not a lot of straights, so it's a 70 lap track. Um, typically short tracks play into Ferrari's hands um, more than not. That being said, Ferrari has only finished 1-2 once this season. And how that many was times, in Bahrain. How many, <laughs> the first race of finished, the season. Finished both uh, that's, a, that's a good question. They have had 1-2-3-4... Well, I know Leclerc's had at least three DNFs. They've had four podium uh, victories. Well, not victories, but podium finishes throughout the season. Science has for sure had, I think Science has had four DNFs as well. Seven DNFs between the two of them. That's a lot. It's going to be hot again. So we gave Kyle a triple for this. I feel like that that's fair again, a triple. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So. I would agree. I don't think it's a home run. Okay, triple it is. What do you got, Kyle? I have something not copying Wyatt this week. Uh... I'm going to say that I've kind of given up on Ferrari um, and saying that Red Bull will win the Constructors' Championship by over 100 points. Now, obviously, if Ferrari goes 1-2 this weekend, that puts a huge dent in what Red Bull is doing, but Red Bull does currently have an 82-point advantage in the Constructors' standings. So historically, I had to look because I didn't actually know what this is, but between 2013 and 2017, so over those four years, uh, there was a spread of more than 100 points, some of those being 200 plus points uh, of margin. 2018 was 84, 2019 was 235, 2020 was 254, and 2021 was 28. However, all of those, except for 2013, were Mercedes won championships. So having more than a hundred point spread is not unheard of. And Mercedes is currently uh, 44 points behind Ferrari. 
So I don't know what to give this. It, it basically, I'm just kind of stalling. It seems like a single or a double to me. I don't like, think so. I, I disagree with that. Because um, I have not given up hope on Ferrari yet. I, I'm not giving this more than a double. I want to give it a triple. Circumstances. I was leaning towards single. I want to give it a triple. But what uh, what were you planning? What were you hoping for, Kyle? At least a double, if not a triple. I, I mean, Ferrari has proven themselves when they can be on track, they are equal to or better than Red Bull. So if you take away the times that they're bad, they're good. <laughs> That's what you just said. If they can right. finish the race, if they can finish the race, they're good. Yes. We're gonna we're gonna hit it right in the middle. We'll we'll do double. All right. All right, I'm fine with that. You got Ryan. So I'm gonna piggyback off Mike just a little bit, not specifically, but on the trade deadline coming up, I'm going to predict that the Cardinals will make more trades up until the deadline than the Twins will. The Cardinals and the trades are in similar situations as far as record goes. However, uh, you know the Twins are first in their division. And the Cardinals are second, so I feel like they have to have a little bit more energy, a little bit more want to. So it's more of a hope than a prediction, but I'm hoping they can make some big moves, or at least a couple moves to make their roster a little bit better. So I'm going to say they finish up with more trades than the Twins will have. And this is like total trades, not like total players. Yes, sir. Total trade. Trades. I don't know. This seems like probably a double, I guess. I don't know. Sure. I double. Yep. Is that is that fine, Ian? You don't feel yes, like sir, that's that. That double? seems fair. Okay. Double it is. With three doubles, a triple, and a strikeout, that concludes our write that down prediction segment, which means we're at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode 183 of the 8311 cast. Appreciate y'all sticking around, and make sure you check out next week's episode as well. But until then, signing off for the 8311 cast, we have your hosts, Kyle Mersh, Mike Ludwig, Ariane Barry. And Wyatt Theater. Talk to y'all again next week. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones.